The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Loving Father, again, we give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for a Savior who loved us, even to the point of death, the death of a cross. Father, the scene that, that fills my mind's eye at the moment is Jesus standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And when Jesus saw the weepers, and he saw the tomb, and he saw his friends, Mary and Martha, the Bible says that Jesus wept. He wept not so much for his friend who had died, but he wept over the terrible heartache, the scourge that sin has laid upon this earth and its inhabitants. Sin that has caused sickness and death and decay. And Father, he wept. He also wept knowing, knowing that in a few weeks he would go to a cross. And there he would suffer and die. And by his stripes, Isaiah tells us, we are healed. And Father, we know that in a day to come, whether it's on this earth or whether it's in the presence of the living God, every sickness, every sorrow, every sadness, every disease will be healed. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ will be made whole, not just in spirit and soul, but also in body. And yet, Father, we know the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ as He walked on this earth and He saw sick people everywhere He went and He took His time to lay hands on them and heal them, to restore sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, to raise the dead like Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, to cast out demons and cleanse lepers. He had compassion for the humankind that He came to walk amongst and die to save. And so, Father, we come before you and we bring the names of those dear friends and loved ones who are sick and sorrowful because of what sin has done. Not that every sickness is a result of sin, but, Father, the condition of man in sin has brought sickness into the world. And so, Father, we pray especially for Carrie this morning as she is dealing with this staggering news of cancer. We pray for others. We give thanks. We rejoice this morning that Jeff has a clean bill of health. The cancer has been eradicated from his system. Father, we pray and we give you thanks for Susan Tennyson, who is doing so much better, for Mae Kang, who is much improved. Lord, we pray again for Edna. It was good to see her out on Wednesday morning and looking bright and cheerful. But, Father, we notice how quickly she fades and gets tired. Lord, we would lift her up to you and seek your blessing for her. Lord, for the two older ladies I met this week, Angela and Mary. And Father, for Mary, who is life is slowly drawing to a close and her memory is fading. And her prayer request was that her faith would not fail at the very end. And so, Father, we lift up Mary Smith to you and ask, O oh God, that you would strengthen her. Keep her memory able to remember that verse that she kept quoting to me, John 3:16. Father, we pray to you for Angela as he look, she looks after her. 
that you'd strengthen her for the journey and encourage her faith. Father, too, for Maria, as she looks after Ray, we pray, oh God, that you would strengthen her for the journey and encourage her. It has been a long journey for her. And Father, we pray for strength for this dear lady and for Ray, too, as he struggles along with his, his condition. Father, we ask you for all these dear loved ones on the list, that you would meet their needs according to your riches and grace and glory. Father, for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, for those who are struggling with difficulty and weakness, Lord, I think about my sister in Canada diagnosed with Lofgren syndrome, acute sarcoidosis. And Father, we pray for her that you would strengthen her and lift her up, enable her to keep going and keep walking with you. Father, we pray that you would deal with the, the disease, the issue that's afflicting her. Father, that she would know the joy of the Lord even in the midst of pain and suffering. Father, we ask you this morning also for this church, for us as a people of God, that we would have hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would not be easily drawn away by the snares and the traps, the trinket and the junk of the world, but that we would come as Christ has called us to come, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Father, we're going to look at a few men who stood firm in their faith because they had been with Jesus. They were still with Jesus. And godliness of character gave him that boldness, that resoluteness against an opposition that strove to crush them out. Father, we think about some of our brothers and sisters in far-off lands in Korea and China and other places where the gospel is pushed down and men try to stamp it out. And Father, we know the great record of the church history that when men strives to crush out the testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is indeed the very tools that you use to cause it to flourish and grow stronger. Father, we pray for this nation. And Father, we ask you that you would do what is necessary in this nation, that the church of Jesus Christ in Australia would grow stronger. It would flourish. The testimony for Christ and him crucified would be powerful to those who would strive to crush it out. Father, we pray for revival again. Lord, we're not going to stop asking because we do believe it is your desire that your people have a deep and a strong, a profound love for the Lord Jesus Christ, burning hot, not lukewarm. Father, we pray that this church would not become a country club, somewhere we go on the weekends to meet up with friends and have a good time and go home again ticking a box, we've done our duty. But Father, we pray that this church would be like a mobile army hospital. Father, when we come together to get refreshment, to refuel, to feed, to feed up and get new instruction, get fresh instruction from the word of God, that we might go back into the battle and continue the work that you have left us to do. Father, you gave us a commission. The Lord Jesus gave us a commission that day on the mountaintop with his disciples to go into all the world, make disciples and teach them all things that Jesus gave us. Father, we pray that we would be a people that are zealous to see the, the great commission fulfilled. Father, we pray that you would work in the heart 
and the life of every single person in this room. Father, we pray that you would do the work that you have designed for this day in each of us, that we would be, we would walk closer to the Lord. We would be a godly people, a people holy to the Lord, that we would grieve over sin and strive to push it out, strive to put it away. Father, that we would be striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to put off the old man and put on Christ. And so stand boldly and firmly for him against the opposition. Father, we ask you for your help and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite Cam to come up and read the passage this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Beginning at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they ordered, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that for that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is, night, it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. To stand with Christ is to never truly stand alone. To stand with Christ is to stand with God Almighty against His defeated enemy. Our opposition may have the best of man's education, but we stand with Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Our opposition may come from the highest societies of men, but we stand with the in the continual presence and unceasing fellowship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, biblical and church history has repeatedly shown us that every attempt of the opposition to crush and destroy God's people becomes the very tool which God uses to spread His witness further and wider. The more the enemy attempts to destroy the church, the stronger and wider God grows and spreads his people. An ungodly opposition cannot silence God's witness to Christ. Opposition is not merely a, a theoretical or historical set of facts. 
The opposition takes the form of real men and real women who stand breathing out curses and threats against Christ and his people. The opposition hurls words and insults which cut and wound us. The opposition inflicts real wounds, causing real blood to flow. In over 2,080 years of church history, the opposition has taken the lives of countless followers of Jesus Christ. Fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, pastors, preachers, and evangelists. Millions of ordinary Christ-trusting, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching believers have suffered torture and death at the hands of this defeated opposition to Christ and His people. He is indeed defeated, but there are times when it seems not so much. What gave those believers, those men and women, the courage to stand firm? What will give us that same courage to stand when opposition comes? The opposition may be a courtroom full of lawyers and judges. It may be an angry crowd of protesters. Your opposition may be the fellow workers in your company, in your office, in the schoolroom. It may be family and acquaintances. The opposition may come in many types and shapes and numbers, but come it will. But silence God's witness, it cannot. Never. The text we want to consider this morning shows us an ungodly opposition that cannot silence God's witnesses. In this fourth chapter of Acts, we see the frustrated attempt of an ungodly opposition. As usual, there is a note sheet in your bulletin there. It's a blue color today, and you can follow along with that. The frustrated attempts of an ungodly opposition to stop and silence the apostles. Those Sanhedrin have heard the teachings of Jesus himself in the past. They've heard the same teachings now repeated through the apostles, and they've become hardened against both the Messiah and his message. Their hardened hearts are now driven to try and stop the message from reaching any further. Their hardened hearts are not satisfied with just themselves not hearing and responding. They now strive to prevent any others from hearing too. Their hardened hearts have become blind to God and blind to themselves. They cannot see the folly of their own behavior while they recognize that a notable sign only possible by God's hand has been done, yet they will not believe. They recognize that the apostles' witness and message has the concrete validation of a healed cripple standing before them, but still they will not believe. Let's consider some of the Sanhedrin's actions. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 14, they could not oppose the message. Not one word of argument or dispute against Peter's message. Not one contradiction, one opposing argument. These are the lawyers and the scholars, the highest trained, the best situated men. There's 70 of them. And yet there's not one word of argument or opposition Notice, secondly, in verse 16, they couldn't deny the sign of a healed man. It's a notable sign, memorable, significant, undeniable. 
The sign itself, this man stands, walks, leaps, and praises God. He's so exuberant in his joy over what God has done. He's standing right in front of them. Standing, not lying down, standing up. And yet, they just they try to deny it, and they can't. And so in verses 17 and 18, they call in the apostles and command them not to speak or teach in the name or the authority of Jesus anymore. But alas, they discover the apostles no longer recognize the Sanhedrin as spokesmen and representatives for God. The apostles call the Sanhedrin to judge for themselves whether it is right in God's view to listen to them and not to God. Clearly, Peter and John see the Sanhedrin not only no longer God's representatives, but also acting against God. And so we notice thirdly in verses 19 and 20 that they couldn't exert any influence with the apostles. In verse 21, the Sanhedrin further threatened the apostles, meaning that within the Sanhedrin's legal practice, they must issue warnings for violating the law. And then if another later arrest occurs at a repeat offense, they may then at that time inflict a physical beating or other appropriate punishment. And we'll see that in some chapters later on. Notice fourthly in verse 21, they could not punish the apostles. And the Sanhedrin's motivation is clearly the fear of the people who are praising God for such a miracle. How could they punish the apostles for being the vessels through whom such a praiseworthy deed had been done by God? Sadly, the Sanhedrin fears the people and not God. One of the things that struck me as I read through and studied the passage is the Sanhedrin not once confer with God in prayer. It's remarkable. It's it's striking. These men, the priests, the lawyers, the scribes, they're the spiritual leaders of that nation. And in this situation, they do not consult the Lord in prayer. In all their actions, we can see their opposition to God. They wanted to oppose the message, but they couldn't. They wanted to deny the sign, but they couldn't. They wanted to exert the influence over the apostles, but they had none. They wanted to punish the apostles' actions, but they could not. There is an air about them of a desperate, anxious helplessness. They're sort of running, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? comes through as you read the story. They desperately wanted to silence the apostles, but at every turn they are hindered clearly by God's own hand. Every attempt to oppose God will ultimately and eventually fail. Opposition to God's work may seem for a time to be winning. For nearly a century, the opposition to the church in Korea seemed to be winning, but when access was regained to the Korean church, it had grown by millions of faithful Christian converts. Attempts to crush the church only serve God's purpose to greatly increase the church. Somebody once said, the blood of the martyrs is indeed the seed of the church. If you oppose Christ, you may for a time have some success, but success isn't truly measured until the final day when Christ returns and then all 
will be made clear. Well, let's give some thought to Peter and John. The firm stand of a godly character. The most significant statement the text makes about them is in verse 13. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But the credit for the apostles standing firm is not merely that they had been with Jesus, had been with Jesus, but that they're still with Jesus. The Sanhedrin, of course, doesn't recognize Jesus' resurrection. And so they see the apostles' uh, contact with Jesus as purely past tense. And brothers and sisters, like so many believers before us, we must always remember the Lord Jesus' promise to us from Matthew 28 and verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Living in the constant realization of Jesus with us is a vital part of a godly character that will stand firm against opposition. Having their lives profoundly changed by Christ and living under the continual influence of the Holy Spirit has developed in them a godly character that enables them to stand firm against an ungodly opposition. I want us to see primarily from this passage four evidences of a godly character, four marks of godliness that stand firm against ungodly opposition. And so firstly, godliness knows and lives in the forgiveness of sins. Now that's not so much brought out in this passage, but we were saying last week how Peter could easily have been paralyzed by the memory of his past failure outside the court of the Sanhedrin just a few weeks earlier. He had warmed his hands by the fire while inside they had questioned and abused the Lord Jesus. Luke 22 verses 54 to 62 records how Peter denied knowing, even knowing Christ three times. But praise God, Peter had been forgiven and restored by the Lord. Peter had, or sorry, Christ had purchased forgiveness for sin on the cross Christ had sought Peter out and drawn from him confessions of his love for the Lord Jesus. It was love that drove Christ in grace and mercy to forgive Peter. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know one other thing. If you walk out of here forgetting everything else, know this. There is forgiveness of sins and faults and failures, but it may only be found in the Lord Jesus. However you failed, however we failed Christ in the past week, forgiveness is for the asking. Peter knew the immense grace of God and the forgiveness of sin. A godly person lives in the freedom of forgiveness. Peter lived in the assurance of forgiveness and so he could boldly stand firm for Christ. But you know, Peter wasn't alone in the room, was he? John was standing right beside him. If we would go to Matthew 26 and verse 56, there we would see that John, along with all the other disciples, they flee away into the night, frightened by Jesus' arrest and the prospect of trial and crucifixion. They all left Jesus alone in his trial and his suffering, but John also knew the forgiveness of sin. Those who stand with Christ know the forgiveness of sin. Godliness knows and lives in the freedom of God's forgiveness. Friends, listen, all of us have sinned. 
All of us have failed to conform our wills, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions to God's revealed will in Scripture. We sin because we were born with a sin nature. We sin because we want to. We sin because we love it. We sin because we desire our will above God's will. We sin just as surely as Peter and John did. But the good news is that we can all know the forgiveness of sins just as surely as they did. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of death we owed. And he calls on us by his grace to turn away from sin and turn toward God in obedience to him. Christ was crucified and died for our sins and our failures. Christ was raised again for our justification. Christ stands and pleads with us all, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest of forgiveness and the rest of fellowship with God. Peter and John were bold and resolute in their stand for Christ. They could be that way knowing they'd been forgiven for sin by God. Secondly, godliness requires fellowship with God. Continual fellowship with God and Christ is the key to godliness. Notice in verse 13, they've noticed that they have been with Jesus. They had indeed spent time with Christ. They're still spending time with Jesus. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Christ in love and grace has chosen them and us to be his disciples. Christ in love and grace has opened his heart and mind to them and us walking along the road, sitting in the house, or perhaps even gathered for worship, Christ has gently, patiently, in words of eternal life, He has taught them His truth. Christ has led them in His way. Christ has given them His life eternal. The apostles have heard and understood His message. The apostles have responded in faith and belief in Christ. They're not, their lives are now revolving entirely around Jesus Christ. They were Christ-centered and Christ-focused men. The same closeness to Christ, the same nearness is available to us all. The intimate knowledge of Christ that they had is available to us. Christ longs to spend time in fellowship with us through prayer and reading His Word, through listening to Him teach His truth. You ever get alongside a man or a woman, an older brother, older sister, and there is just this air of godliness about them? I mention them fairly frequently. I'm, I'm hoping he never hears me do it because I think he'd be very embarrassed. But my good friend, Uncle Jack, with whom I spent countless hours learning how to study and read and pray, He's a man, when you get together with him, there is just a sense of godliness about him. A quiet gentleness. He, he, his Bibles are worn out from countless hours on his knees in his study with the Bible on the chair in front of him, praying and crying and weeping over the Scriptures, pouring out his heart to the Lord. And when you spend time with a man like that or a woman like that, you know it. These men were godly men. They had spent time with Christ. And I can just see the Sanhedrin. There's a little picture I put in your, your bulletin on the inside page there. 
It's kind of small now, but you can see them. They're all gathered in that semicircle around it. It only shows one here, but in the reality, there was two of them. And they're leaning over, and I can just see the Sanhedrin as they're leaning over, and they're staring at these two men. You see the Sanhedrin with all their robes and all their finery, their phylacteries on their head and the phylacteries on their arms and all their robes and their long beards and these simple, rough-spun fishermen standing there in front of them. And they were amazed, astonished, the word says, because of these men and the boldness they had. Godly men. Godly men spend time, hours and hours in the presence of Christ through prayer and reading His Word, through listening to Him teach us His truth. Godliness requires our continual fellowship with God through Christ. We become like those we spend time with. My dad used to laugh at me because I'd change my hairstyle depending on who I've been hanging around with. He'd, he'd laugh and say, well, flattery is the sincerest form of imitation or something like that. Or other way around, however it goes. Doesn't matter. But it's true. We become like those we spend time with. And these men had spent time with Christ. And as the Sanhedrin looked at them, they just saw there was Christ standing in front of them in the form of these two Jewish fishermen. The Bible says, we also become like Christ when we spend time with Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Bible says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are transformed into the image of Christ as we spend time with Him, communing and fellowshipping with Him, including sitting silent in His presence, so the Spirit of God can take the words of Scripture that we have been meditating on and speak to us through them. Time with Christ will develop godliness. A godly witness stands firm against an ungodly opposition because they're in continual fellowship with God through Christ. I had a friend who was preaching at a, a church and he knew that the things he was saying from the pulpit were not being received well. And he got done, and a, and a young fellow came up to him, and he said, Brother Paul, there's a group of men at the back of the church, and they're really angry at you. And Paul looked at the young man, and he said, that's okay. I'm far more aware of the God who stands beside me than the men who stand against me. And brothers and sisters, I'm absolutely convinced as those two men stood there in that, in that room, the three of them, actually, Peter and John and the layman. There was not three men in the ring. There was four. Just as surely as the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went down into the furnace that day that the king put there, and the king looks in and says, hey, wait a minute. We put three in there, but now there's four. And I'm convinced that Peter and John, as they stood there and made that testimony and preached the gospel for Christ, they were powerfully aware that Jesus stood between them with his arms on their shoulders and he silently gave them the words to say and the strength and the boldness with which to say it. Godly witnesses stand firm against an ungodly opposition because they're in continual fellowship with God through Christ. I want you to notice they're spirit-filled. I don't want to repeat last week's message, but up in verse 8, they're, they're filled with the Spirit. Peter is. 
Godliness is produced by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not all up to us. Praise God, it's not all up to us. Praise God, He's filled us with His Spirit that we might be transformed from the inside out as the Spirit of God has freedom to work in us through the Word of God to change us, to make us like the Lord Jesus. Godliness requires our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and godliness requires obedience to the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice also in verse 19 that they are God-hearing Godly character is developed through devoted listening to the voice of God as He clearly and loudly speaks to us. Not an audible voice, but certainly through His Word. These men had heard the commands of God and they listened. Their listening enabled them to clearly discern the commands which were from God and also those which were not from God. They did not hesitate to make it clear they must listen to God and obey His commands. They even suggest that the Sanhedrin is no longer representing or speaking for God. Their fellowship with God was rich because they were listening to Him. Christian, I don't know about you, but I know that I want that sweet fellowship with God that will enable us to stand firm against the opposition. I want to listen for the voice of God through Scripture. I want us to plead with God for the determination to obey His voice when pressure is brought by the opposition to disobey God's Word, then by faith to stand firm in Christ, with Christ, speaking for Christ. And I'm convinced that during that firm stand like them, we will also know the comfort of His presence and fellowship with us. Godliness also requires fellowship with God, time with Christ, being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, listening to the voice of God through His Word. And thirdly, godliness produces forthrightness. Say, what's forthrightness? It's a $10 word that means boldness. I, I will confess, I bowed at the altar of alliteration that came up with forthrightness, but you can call it boldness and then you'll be okay. The Sanhedrin perceived or grasped that these apostles were uneducated common men. The Sanhedrin were astonished and amazed, wondering because they were plain, simple fishermen. The Sanhedrin were astonished at the apostles' boldness. Godliness gave them a forthrightness, a boldness to speak for God. They did not share the Sanhedrin's regard for social status. They didn't need to. They were in the continual company of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. They cared not for the Sanhedrin's regard for education. They had come to know Christ and Him crucified. They had an intimate knowledge of Christ, their Savior. That's all the education they needed. Knowing their own sinfulness and the cost of their forgiveness. Knowing the call of Christ to come to take up their cross and follow Him likely meant their own violent death. They stood there in the full certainty that if they carried on, they would almost certainly die. Peter already knew. The Lord had told him in cryptic terms, one day you will go to a cross too. Knowing those things did not leave them cowering in a corner. On the contrary, it set them free. 
Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. They're free in Christ. They're bold with Christ to speak for Christ. Because in coming to Christ, they had died to self. In coming to Christ, they and we must die to the world. In coming to Christ, they and we must die to sin. Having died to those things, they had nothing left to lose and so much to gain for Christ. One of those stories about the Korean uh, church, one of the many martyrs, a young pastor was taken repeatedly from his home and said, if you bow to the shrine of the Japanese God, this is back in the early part of the last century. If you bow to the shrine, we'll let you go home. You can carry on. And so many Christians have decided, well, you know, bowing to the Shinto shrine, it's just a way of uh, patriotism, we'll call it. But this man had refused. And so they beat him up and they let him go home. And they sent someone to his church. This young pastor stood up in his church. And the very first thing he began to preach on the next Sunday morning was, guess what? Bowing to the Shinto shrines is idolatry. And they arrested him and they put him back in jail and they beat him and beat him and beat him. In his last letter home to his wife, over six years, he'd lost almost all his body weight. He was wasting away and they had beaten him repeatedly, beaten him repeatedly. He told his wife, there's nothing left. Follow my steps, my footsteps, and I will see you in heaven. And he died shortly thereafter. Somebody asked him, how can you do that? How can you keep on doing that? And he said, really, once you have died, there's nothing more they can take from you. And he didn't mean dies and put in a grave. He meant dying to the world, dying to sin, dying to himself. Once he got to that point, there was nothing more they could take away. And so beat him they did and die he did. They were bold. They feared God and they did not fear men. They were bold to speak to the lame man outside the temple. They were bold to speak to the crowds gathered in the portico. They were bold to speak and preach with the same clear, sin-exposing, grace-offering, Christ-exalting message because their focus was all on Christ. I wanted to bring a fourth sub-point, godliness that produces fruit. The man that was standing beside them was the fruit of a godly life. They had done a good deed for a man. But instead, I wanted to do something different. I want us to focus on the central figure of the text. It's not the Sanhedrin and their ungodly opposition. It's not the healed cripple standing as silent evidence of God's power in Christ to heal and forgive. It's not even Peter and John, the two godly apostles. The central figure in the whole story is Jesus Christ. It's Christ who took the form of a servant who was born in the likeness of men, who humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. It's Christ who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, who made us alive and raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. It's Christ dying to achieve healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. It's Jesus Christ who died to pay the penalty sufficient for all of our sin. 
It's Christ in grace and mercy offering the same forgiveness to Peter who denied and abandoned him. To the 11 disciples who fled into the night, he offers the same forgiveness to John who later stood with Mary at the foot of the cross. He offers the same forgiveness to the Jews who cursed and rejected him. He offers the same forgiveness to the lame man who was made whole. He offers the same forgiveness to the soldiers who flogged and crucified him. And he offers the same forgiveness through two apostles to the Sanhedrin who plotted for his death. It's Christ who in grace and mercy offers the same forgiveness to you and me, brother and sister. If we will come and repent of sin and turn to God in faith for forgiveness. It's Christ who is the center of the text and the message. It's Christ whom to know is life eternal. It's Christ standing there in the middle of that place with Peter and John. It's Christ with whom we're called to live in sweet fellowship. He's the center of the story. It's Christ who wants to set us free from our deadly addictions to the world, to wealth, to the here and the now. It's Christ who desires that we be like him and those first century believers. They died to those things to live for Christ and only for Christ. It was Jesus who said in Mark 8, 34 to 38, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But listen. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes. Why are we not standing boldly for Christ like they did? I think the answer is because even subconsciously we think we have far too much to lose. Brother and sister in Christ, I'm convinced that's what's holding the church back from revival. We've got far too much to lose. Nice homes, expensive cars, good jobs. Great vacation spots, workshops full of tools, everything you can imagine. We've got it all. And all of a sudden, when the pressure rises and it's a choice between losing everything we've got to stand for Christ, the the unconscious thought in the back of our minds is too much to lose. But for those men, countless millions who've suffered and died for their faith behind the Iron Curtain in communist countries and other countries where Christianity is constantly under pressure to be stamped out, those men have got nothing left to lose. I was chatting with someone this week and I said, I wonder if we ought not to pray that God will bring persecution to Australia, that God will raise great opposition in Australia. You say, I don't know about that. But you know, the sad thing, not the sad thing, the great thing, it's not sad at all. You look at the church in the Soviet Union from 19, what, mid-30s, 40s, they tried repeatedly and with great effort to crush it out. 
when they finally tore down the wall and opened up Soviet Union, the missionaries didn't only go in, the missionaries came out of the Soviet Union and went around the world preaching the gospel to the Western countries because the Western countries had lost sight in all of their wealth and prosperity of what the gospel really means. Korea, South Korea, I believe it is, now has more missionaries on the field. Think of this. I think I told you maybe last week. I don't remember. One church, 3,000 people in that church, they resolved 20 years ago to send 2,000 of their members out to the mission field. 20 years later, they sent 2,000 missionaries full-time overseas. This is not short-term mission trip, young people. This is full-time overseas missionaries, 2,000 from a church of 3,000. More missionaries from one single church in Korea than the whole of the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States. That's amazing. Why? Because man thinks he can crush it out. And God knows that when persecution comes, you can you read through the book of Acts as we're going to keep going. You're going to see how God uses persecution in Jerusalem. And what does he do? He drives the disciples out, Judea, Samaria, out to the endmost parts of the earth. Opposition rises thinking it can crush it out. And all God does is spread his missionaries further afield. And countless millions more come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, our problem is we think we have too much to lose. And I confess fully, I'm, I'm right there. There's a piece of me that says, Lord, I hope and pray the opposition comes and the church grows so long as I don't have to bleed for it. But you know what? That's what God has called us to do. I had someone recently, a dear friend, try and tell me that this whole idea of Christian and suffering is not a New Testament truth. Rubbish. The Bible says it's been given to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. These men stood there boldly, firmly proclaiming the gospel of Christ because they had nothing left to lose and everything to gain. A few chapters later, they will come again in front of the same Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will lay them on the floor in front of the group and they will flog them or beat them with rods. 39 times, the law allowed 40 times. They left off ones to show grace. How sweet. And these men walked out and what did they do? They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Sometimes I think, brothers and sisters, we think that persecution hasn't come to Australia because we're more blessed than the countries it has come to. I think the reality is that we have not been found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ yet. What does all this mean for us? It means, I think, taking our, what we hold so tightly with our hands, it's mine and I'm not giving it up. And we unfold our hands and we give it to the Lord and say, Lord, it's yours. If you would take it for the name of Christ, then take it. And I'll tell you something else. When I preach on things like this, the Lord tests me on them. And so I am convinced that tomorrow something will happen and I will know the test of what I've just said. But don't get too confident 
God will test you on what you hear too. Brother and sister in Christ, they stood there against ungodly opposition. And no, the Sanhedrin didn't in this chapter lay a finger on them, but that would come. Eleven disciples, the Judas went off on his own. The other eleven, except for one, so ten, and then add Paul back into the list, it makes eleven again, all suffered violent deaths. They tried to kill John by boiling him in oil, but he refused to die. God had other plans for him yet. Every one of them suffered that way. Why? Because they had nothing left to lose. Brother and sister in Christ, I plead with us all. I'm standing beside you listening to the same message you're hearing. I plead with us, brothers and sisters, that we would develop the godliness. We would spend time in God's presence. We would know the sweet fellowship of God with us through every circumstance of life so that when that opposition comes, and it will, we can stand there and say, take it. The writer to Hebrews wrote to the Hebrew church and he said, you used to rejoice. You counted it joyful when they burned your homes and possessions. How many of us would do that? Would I? I don't know. I hope and I pray, I plead with God that when the day comes and that opposition comes against this country and this church, that I will do nothing to dishonor the Lord, that I will stand firm with Christ and let them take what they will, that Christ's name may not suffer disrepute. I plead with you to pray the same. Look to those men for an example, but far beyond that, look to Christ. See him above all and let go of the rest. I'm going to just let us take a few minutes to spend some time with the Lord in quiet. And then we're going to come back and we're going to sing in Christ alone again. There's a line out of that song that fits perfectly what we've been saying. So I'm going to give you about five minutes or so just to spend some time with the Lord. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Verse 4 reads, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, listen, no power of hell, no scheme of man can never pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Would you stand with me, please, and we'll sing. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again that it's not in our own strength that we stand. It's in the power of Christ. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit that you have given to live in us and dwell within us and work that great change in us. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that you would do the work that's necessary in each of our lives, that we would walk a little closer to Jesus. We would be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would be willing in whatever area you, by the power of the Spirit, lay on each of our hearts to put to death sin, to put to death the things of the world. 
Father, we pray. We plead with you, O God, that we would see the wealth and the junk of the world through your eyes for what it truly is. And be willing to lay those things aside, to push them away, that we might see more clearly the Lord Jesus, that we might stand in those moments boldly standing and making a testimony for Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you for a work amongst all of us. We plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen.